0: All right,
1: let's go. Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil.
0: And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know?
1: Today we're going to be talking about the Bible being an inerrant book, and we have decided to name this episode... The one with the inerrant... No, that's wrong. The one with the errant inerrancy. Part one. Uh, We're going to split this up into two episodes because there's so much to cover, and we really want to be able to dig into this topic because it's kind of a fun one. So today's episode, we're going to focus on what inerrancy is, a little history of how we got the modern-day Bible that we read, especially the New Testament, and then we're going to look into some various types of contradictions that are rampant throughout the text, and then what a failure of inerrancy would really mean for Christianity. What does it really mean to say that the Bible is inerrant?
0: Well, basically, it means that it has no errors, and that's probably the obvious answer, but this is technically different from infallible. Christians sometimes use inerrant and infallible to mean the same thing, but something can be inerrant and having no errors and not be infallible. Infallible means that it's impossible for there to be errors, like it's a characteristic of that thing. But In Christian circles, the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. They kind of use them synonymously.
1: Yeah, they definitely do.
0: Yeah. So if I scored 100% on a test, that means I didn't get any questions wrong. So I was inerrant on that test. But it doesn't mean that it's impossible for me to get a question wrong. So I'm not infallible. So like that's kind of a good illustration of the difference.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a difference, um, a measure of content versus a measure of character. So they're saying that the Bible is not only doesn't contain any errors, but it's impossible for it to contain any errors because God is perfect and it's based on the character of God.
0: Right. So the really literal or evangelical or conservative Christians, they claim that the Bible is inerrant in basically every aspect. And that includes, well, theology, obviously, but also history, biology, math, and physics, which to me is just kind of ludicrous. I don't know how you feel about that, film. Yeah,
1: because it's like, it's a religious book and like a religious text is supposed to be about living and about life. And it's not about history or science and all that stuff. So it's kind of beyond the scope.
0: I've heard a lot of Christians who believe in evolution say that the Bible is not a science book and we should not hold it to the standards of science. It's not supposed to teach science. And to that, I think, okay, but it shouldn't be wrong about science. The claims that it does make shouldn't be wrong. So we'll get into that too.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think the different sects of Christianity and different denominations having different views about inerrancy is also a problem overall for Christianity because how could you all be right about the Bible and not agree about inerrancy and if it's literally perfect and if it's perfect about everything? That conflict causes a problem across the broader spectrum of Christianity too. Yeah,
0: and that just ties back into the whole 40,000 denomination problem. (laughs) I think it's all tied together.
1: So what was the Lutheran position on inerrancy? Right.
0: So I grew up Missouri Synod Lutheran, which is very conservative, very literal. And I popped onto their website and pulled this from their doctrine. And I already knew this, that they they thought it was inerrant, but I had never really read the doctrine and the justification for it, which I found a little hilarious. <laughs> we teach that the Holy Scriptures differ from all other books in the world and that they are the Word of God. They are the Word of God because the holy men of God who wrote the Scriptures wrote only that which the Holy Ghost communicated to them by inspiration. Since the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God, it goes without saying that they contain no errors or contradictions, but that they are in all their parts and words, the infallible truth, also in those parts which treat of historical, geographical, and other secular matters.
1: Wow. Okay, so that's, that's like, the end. That's pretty direct. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's, it's so concrete. There's like no room for flexibility there. No
0: wiggle room. And so I'm wondering like, okay, what's the justification for these claims? Have they independently verified all the facts of the Bible to be able to proclaim that it's error-free? Well, Phil, in case you're wondering, no, no they, they didn't. didn't. <laughs> they didn't. Here's the justification that they used. And big surprise, they used the Bible to justify the Bible.
1: Oh, weird. What's that called again? Circular reasoning? <laughs> Confirmation bias? Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. So 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That includes all the parts where he says the slavery is okay, you know, take the women in for yourself, kill mm. all the children, you know, yeah. all that. That's all righteous. That's all inspired by God. Yes. Second Peter one twenty one. for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then the last one is John ten thirty five, which I'm not going to read, but it's basically all the same. You know, Bible proves Bible. Right. <laughs> How does the Baptist doctrine
1: measure up? Oh, yeah, the Baptist um, definitely love those texts, too, especially the Timothy passage. That was like one of those ones that you memorized when you were like five years old because you had to get that indoctrination in. So the, the Baptist doctrine, at first, I just looked ...on some church websites, but then I came across the real basis for the Doctrine of Inerrancy in the Baptist Church, and it was based on something called the Chicago Statement, which really became like a litmus test in the evangelical world to determine church's commitment to biblical inerrancy. They actually wrote a whole document. It's a six-page document, which we'll put the link to in the show notes. Um, and it became the baseline for evangelical standards about the view of the Bible. There's five intro statements, and then there's 19 articles, like articles in a constitution, that lay this foundation regarding biblical inerrancy. I'm only going to point out a couple of things, and this is just from the intro statement. It says, Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teachings, no less in what it states about God's actions in creation, about events of the world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So I found it really interesting because nowhere in the document did they reference the truths of the Bible. It was all just man-made stuff that they came up with and said, here's what Baptists believe. And and if you're Baptist and don't adhere to this statement, well, then you're a heretical Baptist and you're lukewarm and... And not too far off from the Lutheran position. Yeah.
0: And after you uh, sent this to me, I read the whole thing. I don't think you knew that. And I put some notes on it. I had a lot of thoughts about this.
1: <laughs> oh, share. Please share. <laughs>
0: yeah, I will. Um, so in Article 1, they say, We denied that the scriptures received their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. Okay, so with that, I just say this is impossible. Just read Misquoting Jesus by Bart Ehrman. I know we're going to talk about that later. Article 5, we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. So to me I think that like is how they get around the whole slavery issue. I've heard that Christians use that one a lot. That oh God was just meeting them where they were at. Right. And he yeah, reveals his word progressively.
1: Yeah, you'll hear um a lot of evangelical pastors say that the word of God is living. So that's how they say, oh, well, it may have been a static document, but it's living and it it changes with the, with the context of of the time and history that we live. But then in the same breath they're also say that the word is unchanging and God is unchanging.
0: Right. Yeah, you can't have it both ways. Article 8, we affirm that God, in his work of inspiration, utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. <laughs> so this is really interesting. I've never heard this before, but it's like they acknowledge that different parts of the Bible have different authorial, if that's a word, yeah. styles. But isn't it convenient that God chose to write in those actual styles? Right. like? <laughs> He didn't override their personalities, but no, God was definitely there. He was in the driver's seat. Right. <laughs> uh, they also say in Article 12 that they deny that science can overturn biblical teachings on scripture and creation and flood. Oh, yeah. Well, it do- that's doesn't good. matter what science there is, or how persuasive it is, it'll never overturn the Bible.
1: That's hilarious, really, because it's like you're saying that observation and things that can actually be verified to be true can't conflict with the Bible, which which would be great if the Bible actually confirmed what science said, but it doesn't. So you've run into some problems there. Okay,
0: and the last one I want to mention is an Article 13, we further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as lack of modern technical precision. So I guess that's like l- lack of a printing press, <laughs> irregularities <laughs> of grammar or spelling observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, like pi, the topical <laughs> arrangement of material, variant selections of material and parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. This is so specific. It's like but they have specific contradictions in their minds, and right. they're getting out ahead of it, and they're being like, no, we know about those errors. They're not actually errors because we're saying they're not errors. It doesn't work like that.
1: yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you were, you were mentioning earlier that there's some other schools of thought in other areas of Christianity about inerrancy. What are some of those?
0: Yeah. So this is interesting. Uh, some schools of thought claim that the Bible is error-free in matters of doctrine, but not necessarily in the non-theological parts. So they do acknowledge there are errors in those parts that are non-doctrinal. And actually, when I had a conversation with my dad and I was pointing out to him a lot of these errors, this is one thing he said to me. He was like, well, yeah, these are errors, but when it comes to the matter of theology, there are no errors. And I was just like, well, how do you know? <laughs>
1: yeah, how did he allow grammatical errors or copying errors, but not allow theological errors? Like,
0: Right. That's one problem I have with this. If God did protect just the theological parts, why did he stop there? <laughs> why didn't he also protect the rest of it? Why not all of it? Is it too much effort yeah. uh, to preserve all of it? And that can't be because he's omnipotent. He has unlimited power. Like, this should be like right. nothing, right? He parted the Red Sea. He knew uh, a miracle, Phil.
1: Yeah, I mean, he turned water into wine. Yeah, he turned the moon to blood. He made it rain frogs. I mean, come
0: And on. he literally created the cosmos. Okay, biggest <laughs> right. miracle in the history of anything. Right. But he couldn't protect all of the biblical text. That doesn't ring true to me. Yeah. So, and the other problem I have with this is that it's easy to falsify the parts of the Bible that are non-theological because you can fact check those but you can't fact check a theology that somebody just made up. Right. That part is unfalsifiable so you will always be able to claim That, okay, yeah, there are these errors over here, but this part that I have here in the middle, that's the most important part that can't be just proven. Those have no errors. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I'm off my soapbox now.
1: The conversations you have with people when you point out stuff like this, they'll even admit, oh, well, you know, at that time, they didn't have this ability or that ability. But then when you challenge them and say, but if they were inspired by God, they should have been far exceeding the abilities that they would have had Mm -hmm. at the time.
0: And there's no reason for God not. To have preserved his text, if right. it's that important, and this is the the word of God, and people's salvations depend on it, and if he knows that people have brains and logic and are capable of rational thought, then he should know that if there's a contradiction in the text, that's going to have ramifications for people's souls. Right. If God is real, if the Bible is real, God is negligent. Right, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, this next point that you make is one of my favorite points, especially the bolded word where what you did say. I say? You were talking about a non-denominational church that said, the Bible is God's inspired word and is the divine authority. We believe that both the Old and New Testaments are inspired by God and are error-free in the quote-unquote original text. Ah, yes. They use that as their explanation for errors because the original text was flawless, but they forget to mention that we don't have any original text.
0: Which is another unfalsifiable thing. Right. It's just like the theology is inerrant. You can't prove it's wrong.
1: You have no original text, so you can say, well, the original text was right, but these scribes messed it up. And But the idea is still inspired by God and is still in it. Right. It just doesn't hold water. Um,
0: And then some people also say the Bible is not divinely inspired at all.
1: The horror. I
0: know, it's crazy. I didn't actually hear this until I joined a Facebook group where a lot of people believe in evolution and they still are Christian. But a lot of them say, well, the Bible was not divinely inspired. It was just man's attempt to understand God. And Mm. they're they're still granting that the Judeo-Christian God is real but that the Bible was not inspired by that God. And I just think that's so weird. Like, Why do you believe it then?
1: Yeah, that's just saying that it's just a nice book. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about Christianity and the reason they use the Bible is because it's supposed to be inerrant, and its inerrancy is what gives it the authority to dictate how you live your life. So if it's not inerrant, it basically doesn't have any authority. You do
0: have to give them credit, though, for acknowledging that there are huge problems with the Bible, so it could not have been divinely inspired. So you have to give them credit for that. Yeah. I, I I just don't understand why they don't go the one step further.
1: All right, let's uh, move forward and talk a little bit about the history and context of biblical inerrancy. So we talked a little bit about what inerrancy is, but let's talk about the context of it in history. So it's definitely more of a modern evangelical concept. There's almost no concept of inerrancy in Britain and the UK and other parts of the world, which is really interesting from a, like, just a cultural standpoint.
0: Yeah. Americans seem to stand apart in a lot of ways from the rest of the world.
1: Especially in Christianity. Like, ever since deconverting, I run across a lot of people and they say, well, you're just mad at American Christianity. And I'm like, okay, I live in America. So what's your point? But the the interesting point about that is, like, that there are other aspects or kind of versions of christianity around the world that maybe are different than ours yeah and
0: over in britain they're not most people believe in evolution even christians so I think they kind of go hand in hand if you're you know, holding on to creationism, yeah, then you're a biblical inerrantist. For sure. Is inerrantist a word? I don't know. But it we're making now.
1: up all kinds of words in this. We are. So it's fine.
0: So some people even claim that just one version of the Bible is inerrant and the rest are just crap. Yes. So there are some people that are King James only and some are Textus Receptus only.
1: I grew up as one of those King James only peoples. The authorized 1611 King James version was the Bible and they had all kinds of clever jokes about other versions of the Bible. Bible. like the NIV which is the new international version was called the nearly inspired version. Huh. They thought that was so funny, you know. So if if someone referenced a, a verse and they used the NIV it was like, "Oh, well, that's the NIV. It's it's not right." But then I found out that other translations were actually more accurate like the New American Standard version was more accurate than the King James, but it didn't matter cuz Baptists are dug in on the authorized 1611.
0: Yeah, they are very stubborn, that King James clan.
1: Was Lutheran King James?
0: No, I think we were ESV.
1: Ooh, how liberal.
0: Yeah, my Lutheran study Bible is ESV. Okay. So early Christian scholars, they acknowledged that there were errors in the Bible. Like Origen, uh, an early Christian scholar who was born in 184, he noticed the inconsistencies in the gospels and he wrote... Let these four Gospels agree with each other concerning certain things revealed to them by the Spirit, and let them disagree a little concerning other things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we have referenced this book already, the Misquoting Jesus book by Bart Ehrman, but there's so much fascinating information in there about early scholars and how they viewed the Bible and the scriptures. I never learned any of that.
0: And they disagreed so much.
1: Oh, so much disagreement. And there was all these battles and brawls about, and people were racing each other to write their own version of the Bible. Yeah. Your boy Martin Luther's on the list too. Yeah,
0: my boy Martin Luther, he also recognized mistakes and inconsistencies in the scripture, but he was indifferent to them because they didn't affect the gospel. But this is interesting because LCMS is based on Martin Luther, obviously. If he didn't think the scriptures were inerrant, why does LCMS now think they are?
1: Yeah, that is interesting.
0: I think it's because the doctrine of inerrancy started to emerge in the 18th and the 19th centuries as people were starting to learn more about the earth, like they were finding dinosaur bones and they were learning more about the universe and the stars and our place in it. And they started to second guess the literal creation and flood stories that were in the Bible. So they wondered what else might not be true. And the doctrine of inerrancy was a response to that. So in the 1970s and 80s, when did you say the Chicago Statement was from?
1: Yeah, it was 78.
0: Okay, so there you go. All these statements of doctrinal inerrancy started to come out.
1: The 70s is not that long ago if you really think about it. Like
0: no, in the grand scheme of things, it's not. So most of Christianity people didn't care about inerrancy.
1: Yeah, and it's and that's uh, very interesting because that's true of a lot of things that have become like a bedrock of evangelical Christianity. A lot of them are very new, modern. Iterations that were not part of Christianity a hundred years ago.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the justification for the inerrant Bible. We talked about this a little bit. Phil, what is the justification? What's like the most used justification for an inerrant Bible?
1: Well, it's everybody's favorite circular reasoning. Yeah. You know, the Bible is inspired by God, God is perfect, so the Bible is perfect. It's the roundabout all over again. Do you believe
0: everything you read?
1: I try not to.
0: Yeah, some people do. It's like if a king came to your door and said, I'm a king. Everything I say is right. And you're (laughs) like, okay.
1: It's like the Nigerian prince. Like, you've got a lot of money.
0: You can trust me because I'm a prince. Yeah,
1: send me your routing number immediately.
0: Like, that's not enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I heard growing up the phrase, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. If it was in the Bible, then you could take it to the bank.
0: Were you the one who said that you would have believed if Jonah swallowed the whale? Was that you who said that?
1: I did not say that, but...
0: Okay, well, somebody said that.
1: I probably would have. If some pastor told me, I would have been like, well... (laughs) It doesn't make sense, but he knows better than I do. It's <laughs> so funny. Yeah.
0: Another reason that people give for inerrant Bible is that Jesus used the Old Testament in a way that assumes it is inerrant. He refers to Adam and Noah as if they were literal people. So I, the more like progressive Christians who believe in evolution and don't believe in creationism, they say that when Jesus was referring to Adam and Noah, he was referring to them as if they were metaphorical or like they were like a parable.
1: Like archetypes?
0: Yeah. So they contend that the creation and the flood story were parables to teach us lessons okay. and that what Jesus was using was referring to those lessons and he didn't mean it literally. Okay. The problem is that you can't prove that. I always thought he was referring to it literally and so did everybody at my church. Right. There's no indication that he didn't. Right. So in Matthew 5.18, Jesus also said that not even one smallest letter or one tiny pen stroke shall in any way pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So this is also circular reasoning. Like you first have to accept that Jesus was God and God is perfect before you can reach the conclusion that Jesus was
1: intimating that the scriptures are perfect. Yeah, and the problem with these methods, they don't even scrutinize the text to look and see if there are errors. They're already assuming that they're error-free. You talked about earlier the t- the scoring a student test. It's like you basically just gave him 100 right off the bat just based on, oh, that kid's a good kid, you know, and he's really smart. Of course he got 100. I don't need to look at his test.
0: Right, but to take that even further, it would be like the reason that you gave him 100% isn't because of past performance. It's just because that kid told you he's perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I'm really good at school. Trust me. Wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there have been a lot of scholars who have actually scrutinized the text and have discovered these errors. And then some of them started scrambling to try to explain away these errors. And some scholars just didn't attempt to explain them, but just simply said that they're errors, period. Bart Ehrman. Yeah.
0: He said he tried to explain them away until one of his professors just was like, well, what if it's just an error? Right. And he's like, oh, I didn't know we could do that. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the background on how we got our Bible we're gonna reference this misquoting Jesus book a lot because we you just finished reading it and I'm in the middle of reading it What I found most interesting how the Bible especially the New Testament came into being you know there was no printing press uh, we mentioned earlier that like a large percentage I forget what the book says but there's I think it was something like 90% of the population couldn't read or write. When they were going to hear the scriptures or any teaching, it was somebody reading it to them aloud in the public forum, and then someone decided, oh, we need to write this down. So then you had to find the small percentage of the population that could read and write, and then they were going to copy down these stories that had been passed down from who knows where.
0: But in the first few centuries, the scribes who were copying the text, not all of them could actually read and write. They were just copying the characters. They're
1: copying the characters. There was no punctuation. No spaces either. The words would all run together on the page. You know, it's like if you see God is nowhere and God is now here written, that's two very different meanings if there's no spaces and punctuation. The early copies of the New Testament were like that, just symbols on a page. The authors didn't know what they were writing. So scribes made mistakes both intentional and unintentional.
0: Yeah, I don't think that is up for debate at all. No. I don't see how anybody can deny that, but that is still an error. Right,
1: and there shouldn't be errors.
0: Those are unintentional errors, but there's also intentional errors, which is pretty scandalous.
1: Yeah, there's some really good stories in there about the scribes thought that maybe they were correcting a mistake from a previous copy, so they would read it. This was later, um, I think around the, the Roman times, they started to have scriptoriums where these were professional scribes, copyists. So these are people who could read and write and understand. right? And so they would read what the person before the translation before, and then they would say, well, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to correct this to what I think it should be. Okay. You could see somebody doing that. That's like an interpretive thing. Again, doesn't make sense in the concept of inspiration.
0: No, it does not. Sometimes scribes put notes in the margins and the next scribe who was using that text to make a new copy would see that note in the margin and think it was supposed to be inserted in the text. Right. And then they would then insert it into text, sort of like viral DNA being inserted into a genome. It's like now it's in there and it's going to be copied from there to eternity.
1: Right. And you have to remember how arduous it was to copy this too. So someone had to handwrite it. Anytime you hand copy anything, even nowadays, it's prone to error with the technology that we have. So I can't imagine the errors that were happening with hand copying back then. Yeah. It's understandable that they would have errors. I mean, nobody would fault them for having these errors.
0: Yeah. Well, we can fault God for allowing them, (laughs) but we can't fault the humans because they're just human. Right,
1: right. Oh yeah, so another, another type of intentional error was to promote a particular doctrine that was prevailing in that time period. There's a section in 1st John 5, 7, and 8, which got a, a cool name, the Johannine comma. And in the earlier Greek manuscripts, there's a whole section that is missing from these verses. And basically, without this section, there is no doctrine of the Trinity. In the earlier better manuscripts of the Greek manuscripts that were like the basis for a lot of the good copies of the New Testament, this doctrine of the Trinity was nowhere to be found. But then when the Latin Vulgate came out, which became like the first kind of authoritative copy of the Bible or of the New Testament, here is this doctrine of the Trinity.
0: I've just looked it up. Do you want me to read yes, it? Yes, yes. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one.
1: Yeah, they called the Word Jesus. The main thing was that part about them being one is not in the original quote unquote text, the earlier Greek manuscripts.
0: And so this was added to settle doctrinal disputes. Right.
1: They were like, no, the Trinity is a thing because that was a popular doctrine at the time. So we ha- this has to be in the Bible. <laughs>
0: If the Bible had been inspired by God, it would have been, A, clear to begin with. God would have foreseen these kinds of disputes, and he would have added in these things that he wanted people to know. Right. If they were that important, he would have put them in there. Right.
1: Yeah, another interesting thing is in certain versions of the New Testament, there's the last 12 verses of the book of Mark are completely missing. The story ends with Jesus being dead. Oh, yeah, ends with the resurrection, and then that's it. But there's no ascension. There's no any of that stuff. And same thing with uh, the story of the woman caught in the adultery in the book of John. That was not in the original gospel of John, but was added because they were trying to make some points about women and sin and things like that. So again, this is like a little bit more of an insidious error. Yeah, You know, it's not something that's like, oops, I used a, a D instead of a B or I missed a comma. These are like intentional.
0: I was watching a debate between atheists and Christians at a church about inerrancy The Christians were saying something like, the Bible is 99.5% preserved from the original manuscripts. And the (laughs) atheists were like, well, we don't have the originals, first of all. Second of all, that's a bogus number. Third of all, even one error will debunk the whole thing. Right, and I agree with that. Yeah, I don't think there's any leeway. I expect God to be perfect. Right,
1: and and if you're basing your whole theology on a perfect God and an inerrant Bible, then yeah, there can't be any errors.
0: Right. Some people don't base their belief on an inerrant Bible. Right, and so that this is no problem. But right. the way you and I grew up, it's like no Bible is inerrant, strict authority. So even if there's one error. Like when I was, you know, started my deconstruction, like the first era I found, I was like, well, done. <laughs>
1: that's it for me. I'm done. <laughs> Thanks. I'll yeah. see you. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm, I'm good. Um, the <laughs> in-hell <ya now>, <laughs> Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Um, so there was another, um, scholar named John Mill who was in England and he had spent like 30 years amassing a bunch of materials to basically do his own version of the New Testament. And what he came across was a lot of problems, a lot of errors and contradictions and, at the end of his study, he basically said that there was something like 30,000 inconsistencies discovered in the New Testament.
0: And he had 100 manuscripts available to him. So that's, I think that's 30,000 across the 100. Yes.
1: And he had a he had done a 30 years worth of research. So this wasn't like something he just like threw together. Like, And research at this time wasn't like you went to Google.
0: He didn't download them to his Kindle. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, this was some serious work. And that's funny because in the Misquoting Jesus, he says that Mill wasn't even exhaustive in his presentation of the data. He had far more than 30,000 places of variations because he didn't cite every variation that he came across. He left out everything related to like order of words and stuff like that. But So there was a lot more.
0: Now that we have more manuscripts discovered and we have um, more efficient ways of parsing the text, I think the number is way higher now, right? Like orders of magnitude higher, maybe one order higher. So 300,000?
1: Some people say 400,000. And Bart Ehrman says in the book, there's more inconsistencies in the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. (laughs) So... That's a problem. Yikes. Like we've said, a lot of scholars have admitted to these scribal errors and the explanations you know, for these are just that because they're not pertaining to doctrine or salvation, they're not really that important. But as we keep saying, you know, if the book is supposed to be inerrant, it does matter and it can't have these errors, period.
0: Yeah, I, I want to link to this uh, debate that I was watching earlier today because it was really interesting and at the end, it got really fiery with the people up for the Q&A. They were like yelling at them. <laughs> yeah. So one of the Christians when he was asked a question about the ending of mark is it supposed to be in there or is it not supposed to be there he was like i don't really think it matters that much i was like bullshit it matters <laughs> this is always their answer when they're caught but they're back to the wall yeah well i don't think it's really that important yeah no yeah no no no, no. <laughs>
1: yeah you can't you can't just get a get out of jail free card
0: oh no that error is not important the ending of mark not important
1: the ending of mark doesn't matter the ascension of christ who cares no big deal So we're going to transition. This is the part that we're going to split up into two parts. We're going to talk about ways of invalidating the Bible with itself. And so for the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about contradictions.
0: Yeah, specific contradictions.
1: And we've said this a couple times, but if we can find even one error in the Bible, then we can invalidate the more literal conservative view that the Bible is in, in error in every single aspect.
0: One way we can find errors is to find contradictions. And a contradiction is when two accounts are mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean just a difference or an inconsistency. A contradiction means both things can't happen at once. So, like, I could tell you that I had tacos for dinner, and I could tell another person that I had salad for dinner, and it wouldn't necessarily be a contradiction because I could have had tacos and salad. Right. But maybe I told you tacos because you love Mexican food. <laughs> And I told my other friend salad because that's he's a health nut and I I don't know I wanted to impress him. Right, right. But if I said like today is Wednesday and I said to somebody else today is Thursday, as long as I'm in the same time zone, when I say those things, that's a contradiction. Right. If one part of the Bible says A and another part says B, and A and B are mutually exclusive, then one of them is wrong. And what's another word for wrong, Phil? Errant. Error. <laughs> Error. <laughs> <Yeah>. Error.
1: Error. <laughs> so there's a couple different categories of contradictions. We're gonna focus on three of them. Uh, The first one being doctrinal, where the Bible indicates some doctrine or some way to live and then says something different later that contradicts itself or the guidance that that it gave earlier.
0: Oh, so I take it back that we can't falsify the doctrinal thing. I guess we can. Yeah,
1: we're going to falsify a few of them.
0: Let's falsify it.
1: Yeah. And then we're going to talk about numerical contradictions. Well, And that's places like where the numbers don't add up or they're different in the same story that's told in two locations. There's a ton of these.
0: Yeah, but the Baptists say it's just rounding. It's fine. It's
1: rounding. <laughs> yes. I'll <laughs> uh, try to use the math against this. It's us. fine, Phil. Yeah. Then the last one is historical contradictions, which is pretty self-explanatory. So this
0: is the fun part. I love this.
1: Yeah. This, let's talk about the first one, which is, is Christ equal with God?
0: Okay. So if you're taking the yes position, you are reading John ten thirty, which says, I and the father are one. You're also reading Philippians chapter two, verse six is talking about Jesus says, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage two very clear references saying that Jesus and God are equal.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. So if you think that Jesus was not equal to God, you're also right. <laughs> if you're reading John 14:28, the Father is greater than I. That's Jesus saying that. Matthew 24:36. But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the Father. Which means that the Father knows things that the son doesn't know. Right. And interestingly enough, Phil, some manuscripts do not have nor the Son.
1: That's correct.
0: <laughs> so the scribes saw this issue. They saw that this could be construed that Jesus was not on equal footing with God and they did not like that. So they took nor the Son out. Yeah,
1: we'll just take that out. It's still no a big deal.
0: Uh, one more. Jesus also says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. He says that in Mark ten eighteen and Luke eighteen nineteen.
1: That's not a small issue.
0: That's not.
1: Christ being equal with God, because the whole basis of Christianity is the saving work of Jesus and his death on the cross. So if he's not equal with God, well, then that salvation, it's not as good as if God himself actually came down to earth in his God the Father form and died. That's very problematic. It is, yeah. Another doctrinal one is on the topic of finding God or obtaining salvation. One verse says, "Those that diligently seek me shall find me" in Proverbs 8:17. Then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but not find me. That's actually in the same book, like <laughs> the same book of Proverbs. Yeah.
0: I was so shocked when I saw this. I had to go read like more context for it. In Proverbs chapter 8, Those that seek me diligently shall find me. He is referring to those who have been faithful to him and who love him. But in chapter 1, the context is people who have scoffed at God repeatedly, turned away from him. And when they finally do turn to him after a calamity, God turns them away. Okay, That's a problem too. And this is also from Proverbs chapter 1. I will laugh at your calamity and I will mock when terror strikes you. This is God saying that. Wow. So this is definitely at odds with the picture of an all loving God, especially when you compare it to the prodigal son story. So those are two totally
1: different gods. And the idea of God being available to humanity in their quest for salvation is a bedrock right. of Christianity. God is available. You, I mean, how many churches have you sat in and say, all you have to do is, is reach out to God and he's there.
0: Yeah. It doesn't matter what you've done.
1: Right. It doesn't matter what you've done. But then in the same breath, and in this case, in the same book, he's like, well, if you seek me, you'll find me. But also, if you seek me, you won't find me. And by the way, I'm going to laugh at you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I will laugh at your calamity and mock when terror strikes you. Yeah. That's God saying that. Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. So another doctrinal one um, is on the topic of divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5, it says a man can divorce his wife simply because she displeases him, and both he and his wife can remarry. But then in Mark, it says divorce is wrong, and remarrying is to commit adultery. And then in Matthew, it says divorce, except for on the grounds of unfaithfulness, is wrong. And then Mark later in the book says divorce on any grounds is wrong. What? Well, which one is it? So you can go the whole spectrum. You can get divorced for any reason because I'm mad at you or only if you cheat on me or I can't ever.
0: It's no wonder there's so much confusion around this issue.
1: And you still see people raging about this issue. I mean, I went through a divorce and it was very conflicting for me, you know, with my upbringing to have done all the right stuff in my marriage and all that stuff and then have it, have it still end in divorce. And I had to. Reconcile the fact that look, this has nothing to do with Christianity, this is just there's a relationship here that is not repairable. This issue is still argued over today, yeah, because the Bible's not very clear on it, you know, so the last doctrinal one we wanted to talk about is about the omnipotence of God. I love this one this is a a pervasive theme throughout the Bible, right? the omnipotence of God. Oh, yeah. We got a whole slew of verses here from Genesis, 1 Chronicles, Luke, tons of them that say God is omnipotent. Nothing is impossible with God, for God. But then you've got this weird verse in Judges that says, although God was with Judah, together they could not defeat the plainsmen because they had iron chariots.
0: Yeah, that's so weird.
1: They were too heavy for God. Wait, so the omnipotent God couldn't beat an army that had iron chariots? What's he going to do with like an Abrams tank now or like a, an aircraft carrier? They couldn't beat an Iron Chariot. Well, then that doesn't bode well for modern warfighting equipment.
0: The whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, next, we're going to move into some numerical errors. And I love these because I don't know. I like numbers and math. The first one, it's a minor error, but it's an error nonetheless. It's the genealogy in Matthew. There's a whole genealogy that's listed, and then in Matthew one seventeen, it says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. But if you count them, there's only 13 listed. So whether <laughs> this is a math error or a scribal error or preservation issue, it's it's still an error.
1: It's still an error, yeah. And I think there's also some differences in that count between the Gospels, too.
0: Oh, the, all the names are different. I think it's Matthew and Luke.
1: The names are totally different. And they explain it. Well, one of them is the genealogy of Joseph.
0: And one is Mary. It wasn't Mary's because it says clearly Joseph. It's not talking about Mary.
1: Right. Yeah. So another one was about King Jehoiachin. One verse says in Second Chronicles that Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign. And then in Second Kings, the same story it says Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign. Numerical conflict again.
0: And I think in the NIV, they corrected both of these to 18, which is a little sketchy.
1: Oh, that's how they were nearly inspired. Y- yeah, yeah, exactly. See?
0: They did that a lot. And My dad was right. Re- referencing this debate, <laughs> but they were bringing up all these times where in the King James, the numbers were off. And then in the NIV, they had mm-hmm. reconciled them. Another example of this is how old was, um, pronounce that for me, please.
1: Ahaziah. Is
0: that how you say it? So how old was that guy, when he began to reign, <laughs> uh, was he 22, like it says in Second Kings 8.26, or was he 42, like it says in Second Chronicles? This is another example of where I think it's the King James has the difference, and in the NIV both of them say 22.
1: And there's no explanation for why they reconcile them, right? They just change them to match.
0: Right. And my Bible also has 22 for both um, ESV. Hmm,
1: interesting. Yeah. And there's tons of these. I mean, this one is very interesting about how much gold was brought to Solomon. And one account says 420 talents of gold and the other one says 450 talents of gold.
0: Yeah. And I looked at this one up too. So for all of these contradictions, I always look them up to see what the Christian response is, because sometimes I think that their arguments are legitimate, that maybe it's not. I can give a few examples of that. Um, Maybe at the end of the episode, I will. Sure. But for this one, I was not really convinced by their argument. (laughs) The context of this is that there was an expedition uh, for King Solomon. He built a fleet of ships. Hiram went with the servants who were familiar with the sea. They went to Ophir. Ophir. (laughs) What is it? I don't know. Ophir and brought back X number of talents and brought it to King Solomon. So it's basically the same exact context, same like words and everything in both books, except the only thing that's different is the numbers. Okay? The Christian response is that these are different expeditions. Okay. <laughs> that's the only thing they can say.
1: But of course there's no proof that there's different expeditions. That's just...
0: No. They say, oh, it was because it can't be an error, so it must be different expeditions.
1: Right. Right. So another one is how long did Gad tell David he was to suffer famine? One account in Chronicles says three years, and then one in Second Samuel says seven years. Yeah, my
0: Bible says three for both. Oh, nice. It, with a note that says, so the Septuagint says seven years.
1: <laughs> Which the Septuagint is the Old Testament in Greek, in case anybody uh, wants to know. How many horsemen did David take with him from Hadadezer? 700 in the King James, 1700 in the ESV, and... In another passage in Chronicles, seven thousand. Yeah, got a lot of different numbers there.
0: Yeah, that's that's a lot. That's not just two differences. That's three.
1: Yeah, and that's a big difference too, from seven hundred to seven thousand. You could see, okay, well maybe someone added a zero, but once again, it's supposed to be perfect. Yeah. Here's another one. How many valiant Israelite men drew the sword? How many in Judah according to Joab? Eight hundred thousand Israelites and five hundred thousand from Judah according to Second Samuel, and then one point one million Israelites and four hundred seventy-two thousand from Judah in 1st Chronicles just to talk about a little bit about these two books chronicles kings and samuel those are all like parallel histories those stories should all line up cuz they're all telling the same stories of the israelite history from different authors so yeah they're not different accounts you know so you see a lot of these errors or these contradictions between Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So there's a ton of them.
0: My Bible tried to explain this by saying it was the difference in the number of fully armed soldiers and men of military age.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Another one is how many horse stalls were there in Solomon's temple? 40,000, which is a lot, right? (laughs) Right. Or 4,000. Also a lot. Also a lot. So 40,000 is in 1 Kings and 4,000 is in 2 Chronicles. My Bible says probably a scribal slip. So they admit it.
1: (laughs) Can't believe it. Well, and also, there's another, there's other passages of these same verses where it doesn't say horse stalls, it says baths.
0: I saw that. You wrote baths, and my Bible says horse stalls. I was like, where did he get baths from?
1: That's a real big difference because are we talking about where they're keeping the horses or are we talking about where people are taking baths? Because I can't imagine any building that would need 4,000 or Or (laughs) 40,000. Baths (laughs) or horse stalls. Like, that's an insane number. Yeah. So you can see, and we could have put a ton more of these numerical errors. We could, you know, go on for days probably with these numerical errors, but for the, the sake of time, that's just a few of them. Let's move forward to some historical contradictions. These are some fun ones. I think we only have. Well, we have a few of them, but and we're going to go into a little bit of depth in these. But talk about the first one, which is is a very interesting one.
0: So when people claim the Bible is inerrant, that means that the Gospels are historical, reliable accounts of history. But contradiction between them mean that they cannot all be historically reliable. So here's one big difference: the Egypt inconsistency. So in Matthew, Jesus and Mary and Joseph went to Egypt for up to two years after his birth because King Herod wanted to kill him. So while he was gone, Herod slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem who were two years of age and younger. After he was born, they went to Egypt like right after the wise men left and they didn't go back to Nazareth until after Herod was dead. Okay, so that's in Matthew. Now let's go to Luke. After Jesus was born and he was visited by all these people, it says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town in Nazareth. It says nothing about Egypt or Herod. So this is like a huge, huge inconsistency. Apologists have to resolve this because they have to mash them both into one cohesive story.
1: Right. You got to harmonize them. Otherwise, you've got a problem.
0: Har- harmonize sounds too gentle, right? It's mashing. <laughs> it's mashing right. these together until it's like barely even recognizable as a story. Yeah. So their favorite line that they use is, silence does not mean it didn't happen. Right. Right. Silence does not mean omission. So when Luke says, when they had performed everything according to the law, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. What he really means is that after they had performed everything, an angel appeared to Joseph, said, go to Egypt. Then they went to Egypt. Then Herod killed a bunch of kids. Another angel told them that Herod was dead and they should go back to Israel. Then they returned to Galilee. Right. A lot of stuff happened. They say that when it says when they had performed everything, it doesn't mean right after.
1: Right. The pastors would always say this was spread out over a long period of time. It doesn't, you know, it would have taken a long time for the wise man to get from point A to point B. And so that explains the two years. And you got two different accounts where a two year vacation to Egypt, which Egypt was not a place that Israelites would go. So that'd be a pretty significant part of the story for someone not to talk about.
0: It's a pretty big plot point to leave out. Yes. I think that Matthew just made it up and here's why. There's a verse in Hosea that he quotes that is a fulfilled prophecy with this whole Egypt thing. He says, out of Egypt, I call my son. Okay. He's like saying, oh, Jesus is my son, is God's son. We're going to pull him out of Egypt. We First, we have to make him go to Egypt. How are we going to do that? <laughs> this whole thing I just made up, okay? Right. The problem is that verse that he's actually referring to, if you read the whole thing from Hosea, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The son is referring to Israel. Like Israel is being referred to as a child, which is very, very common in the Old Testament. And out of Egypt, I called my son is like them being released from bondage from Egypt, right? Right. So Matthew is basically like commandeering this verse as a prophecy for Jesus. And he's writing a story to make it fit. That's the reason that he has it. And it's not the first time that Matthew has done something like this. And I talked about more of that on my blog. Okay so how many Israelites left Egypt now that we're talking about Israelites leaving Egypt
1: Yeah in Exodus 1237 it says 600,000 men on foot besides women and children and a mixed multitude When you would count or census people, you didn't count women and children. That would have meant 600,000 men, and there would also have been women and children with them. So that's where you get two, two and a half million people would have left Egypt in the Exodus, which would have been a massive amount of the Egyptian population, Like, which I think at the time was estimated to be three to four and a half million people. So if you take out two and a half million people out of Egypt, there's only a million people left.
0: They had that many slaves half the population was slaves?
1: More than than half the population was slaves. It doesn't line up with common sense or archaeological evidence because Egypt was a massive kingdom. They had more than a million people left after the supposed exodus.
0: And they kept really good archival records and they never mentioned any Israelite slaves or anything like that or a huge group of them leaving. They never mentioned any plagues. And also there's no evidence of, you know, millions of people traipsing through the desert for 40
1: years. Yeah, there would definitely be some evidence of that.
0: So how many women went to the tomb? I'll just go through this really quickly because this is a pretty well-known one. It could be just Mary Magdalene, or Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, or Mary Magdalene plus Mary, mother of James, and Salami.
1: <laughs> Salome,
0: <laughs> Salome, or Mary Magdalene, Joanna, or Mary, the mother of James and other women with them, just other women. <laughs> so those are four different possibilities. So every gospel has a different account. Yeah. The apologists say, of course, silence does not mean it didn't happen. Just because the other women aren't mentioned in the Gospels, it doesn't mean they aren't there. So I think that's kind of weak.
1: Yeah, very weak. Yeah, and that same resurrection story, how many angels were at the tomb? Well, Matthew has one angel sitting on the stone that was rolled away by an earthquake, nonetheless, also only reported by Matthew. Mark has one angel sitting inside the tomb. Luke has two angels, doesn't say where they were. And in the Synoptic Gospels, they all have Mary and her crew, which we don't know how many were there. Whoever that was. Going to the tomb. They see it was empty, and then the angels talk to her. John has two angels, but the timeline's weird. Mary went to the tomb, didn't see any angels, but she saw the tomb was empty. Then she went to tell the disciples that she didn't know where the body was. Then three guys come, including Peter, and they check the tomb. And Mary is there crying, looking in the tombs. Then she she sees the two angels. Maybe they were hiding. This
0: is so different from the Synoptic Gospels. So different.
1: It's so convoluted. And then a bunch of other stuff happens before she even sees the angels. And then all the angels say is, woman, why are you weeping?
0: That's different than the other three. The other three have like, they're actually really consistent about what the angels said. So
1: how do they harmonize this story?
0: Well, if they want to mash it together... The story has to be, all the women went to the tomb early on Sunday at dawn. They find the tomb empty. Mary Magdalene goes back to inform John and Peter. Meanwhile, the other women stay at the tomb. They're greeted by angels at slash in the tomb. (laughs) Then Peter and the other guys arrive. They check out the tomb. Then Mary Magdalene cries at the tomb and an angel appears to her. But the problem is this whole mashed up narrative isn't what any of the Gospels individually says happened. Yeah. Luke 24 says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, the two angels appeared. So it's very clear that, like, they found the s- stone rolled away, they went in immediately, they didn't see Jesus, and then the angels appeared. Like, this doesn't line up with John at all.
1: Yeah, none of it lines up. And we probably should note that putting this in the category of historical contradictions is stretching the truth a little bit obviously because there's obviously no proof that that any of it even happened we got one more of these historical contradictions and it's about the disciples after the resurrection what did they do did they go to Galilee or did they stay in Jerusalem
0: in Matthew an angel tells the women to quickly tell the disciples that Jesus is going before them to Galilee and he will meet them there Jesus meets them on the way and says the same thing go to Galilee so on the same day he's resurrected Jesus gives the order to meet him in Galilee the disciples go to Galilee, and they get the Great Commission. Okay, so that's very clear in Matthew what happened. In Mark, the angel also tells the women to tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. An unspecified amount of time later, Jesus gives them the Great Commission, but it doesn't say where. But still, that doesn't conflict. That's fine. Okay, so in John, the angels didn't tell the women to give any message to the disciples, but Jesus appeared to the disciples eight or so days later at the Sea of Tiberias in Galilee. That's still fine. Like, I don't think that's really a contradiction. All right. So now we get to Luke. This is where it gets fun. <laughs> Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms to stay in Jerusalem. And what's more, you can trace the sequence of events so that he gives that order on the day of the resurrection, which is the same day that in the other gospels, he tell them to go to Galilee. So here's the chain of events and it starts in Luke 24, 13. On that very day the resurrection day he met up with these two dudes had dinner with them and then he vanishes then those two dudes i forget their names they went to jerusalem at the same hour it says at that same hour they went to jerusalem which was seven miles away and told the disciples what happened then as they were talking about these things with the disciples still on resurrection day jesus appeared to them he says a bunch of stuff and then in verse 49 he says but stay in the city (laughs) <laughs> okay, so that's so clear. Right. Luke on resurrection day says, stay in Jerusalem, whereas the rest of them say, go to Galilee. In Acts chapter 1, which is the same anonymous author as Luke, in verse 4, he says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem.
1: Oh, at least Luke and Acts are consistent. There yeah, that's go.
0: true. That's true. <laughs> they same author, they should be. Yeah. So apologists, their response is that. Well, Jesus met them in both places at different times. You know, he met them a whole bunch of times in a whole bunch of different places. Right. So they leave it really open. That's like really vague. But my thing is, how can you reconcile the fact that Jesus is giving them contradictory commands on the very same day?
1: But I remember hearing all these different stories and saying, but why are they always different? Why are they so different? And there was always an explanation, you know, it was like, oh, well, Matthew wrote for this audience and Mark wrote for this audience and Luke wrote for this audience. And they all had different, you know, interpretations.
0: Earlier I was talking about how sometimes I look into these and I throw out that contradiction because the Christian response actually has some merit. And I'll just give one example when did the curtain tear before or after Jesus died? Mm. I forget in which one says what, but in one gospel it says that it tore and then he took his last breath and then vice versa in the other one. Right. And when you go back to the Greek and you look at the words that were used, it could mean at the same time, mm. concurrently. And so when they were translated, it was the order in which they put the things. So I thought, eh, that could be. Yeah. There's so many other contradictions that you can't resolve that I'm not gonna like waste my time on these ones that are kind of wishy-washy yeah. and that they might not be contradictions. Like there's no point.
1: So we're going to wrap up this episode. Uh, the next episode, we're going to dig into invalidating the Bible with scientific and historical inaccuracies. So these are like be more inaccuracies as opposed to contradictory stories, just things that are actually inaccurate and wrong. So we have seen the Bible is full of errors, inconsistencies contradictions of varying types including historical numerical and doctrinal this stuff has all been well documented throughout the history of christianity and really the biggest thing to me that i find interesting is that it's been thoroughly examined by people whose job is to examine ancient literature and determine its veracity its accuracy and its historical value like textual critics is like a job that like these people that bart ehrman refers to in his book it's it was their whole life If the doctrine of inerrancy was true and the Bible was truly God-breathed, which is what the word inspiration literally means in the Greek, then there shouldn't be any errors of any kind, even the most minuscule, like these tiny ones that were scribal. There shouldn't be any of those if the Word of God is actually the Word of God. Many scholars and theologians have admitted that the amount of inconsistencies and errors in the Bible pose a major problem to the basis of Christianity. And I actually referenced something that the Chicago Statement said, that the authority of scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the bible and such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual And the church and I agree with that. Yeah, they they know that if the doctrine of inerrancy is disproven, then there's really no leg for the whole of Christianity to stand on. That's probably terrifying for them.
0: Yeah, and I think if you find one error, that's bad, but it's not just one. It's it's a whole lot of errors and of all different kinds. And so I think what this shows is that God was not in the driver's seat of any of this process. If He had inspired perfect texts, then He would have put in the effort. I put effort in quotes because He's God. And effort probably not a concept to him. Right to preserve it, he would have preserved it, and he didn't.
1: I think this idea of the Bible being untrue is a big factor in people's deconstruction and deconversion. Like for me, it started a different circle, and then you know, I arrived at the point where. This stuff's just not true. You had said in a previous episode, the basis of atheism is just saying that there is no proof for God and there's no proof for this stuff being true. There's nothing else to it. It's like, okay, this stuff isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, then you don't have to follow it you don't have to believe it. Mm -hmm. It has no power. Right. It doesn't have any power over your life. You can live as a decent human being without following the Bible. And I think that's where a lot of people are arriving as they walk on their own journeys away from faith. Mm -hmm. So hopefully people find this somewhat interesting and hopefully not too rambling. There's so much to unpack here and neither of us are textual critics or theologians. You know, we're just unpacking this ourselves. We're just
0: bumbling idiots here.
1: <laughs> yeah. We, we hope you guys find this interesting. We'll put a lot of stuff in the show notes for this episode because we did reference a lot of stuff and we want you guys to do your own research as well. I'm sure
0: this episode was not inerrant. No. If we uh, messed up in any way, then let us know and we will put it in the show notes or the footnotes because we don't want to mislead anyone, but I'm sure we misspoke at some point. Yeah,
1: we, we definitely don't claim to be experts on this for sure. So hopefully we can open up some conversations with people. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil.
0: And I'm Susie. Tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know?
1: And you can follow us online at the flawedtheologypodcast.com.
0: Online? What is this, the 90s? Yeah,
1: that we're going to edit that. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. Follow us. At
0: America Online. Me 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 me.
1: Follow us at Flawed Theology Podcast. Bloop, bloop, bloop. And subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. See you
0: next time. Part two.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a little (laughs) bit about. (laughs) See, I am so awkward. I'm thinking about making my bloop bloop sound here. Just, just for fun. (laughs) So you don't even have to mix it down. So I
0: have another panic attack.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to throw it in the middle. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Um.
0: <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let's see if you can do it live. Come on,
1: do it. I was doing it for my wife, and she was like, She goes, What's the context that you would have even made that sound? And I was like, I have no fucking idea. I have no idea, <gasps> was but. So... Who's the temple story. But Suzanne pulled it out, and she loves it. So it's going to be my ringtone soon. Like, <gasps> oh my <stimulated>. god, <laughs> <does. laughs> oh, that's fantastic.
0: Okay, so do the noise right now. Do it.
1: I don't remember what it sounded like. It was like bloop, 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 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but really fast. But it was like, but it's you really mixed it together so it was really fast. So, yeah. No,
0: but each bloop was fast. It was like. <laughs> oh, it
1: was ma- oh, maybe I was making fun of Cardi B because that sounds like something she would do. Like, broop. I don't know who that is. You don't know who Cardi B is? No. Oh,
0: I'm
1: not into pop culture. Leave. We're leaving all this in, by the way. oh no. <laughs> we
0: are not. <laughs>
1: oh, okay.